Well, good evening, everybody. I wanted to start by asking a question. Have you ever prayed and in that prayer said words like, I don't know why I even bother to pray? And I, I began a, a Bible class several years ago with that question. And uh, I actually had a couple of people raise their hand and I didn't say it out loud, but I thought to myself, no, you haven't. Nobody prays like that. That sounds sacrilegious to pray. I don't even know why I bother to pray, Lord. You don't hear me. You never answer me. But it may be the case that um, some, even, um, even in this audience, have at least been tempted to think a thought like that one due to frustrations that often arise in our lives. It may be the case that someone in the audience is feeling that level of frustration, anxiety, or stress even as we speak. Well, if that's the case, then the short book of Habakkuk has something to say to you that, that we really need to hear. Something to say about being able to see God's love, God's power, God's ability to care for his people through the most difficult times in our lives. And right now, a lot of people in our world, um, but uh, more specifically in our uh, country, in our society, are in feeling those kinds of feelings. You know, very often we hold up King David as a man after God's own heart, and Scripture says that he is in 1 Samuel 13, verse 14. And David did say in Psalm 27, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? When evil uh, evildoers came upon me to devour my flesh, my adversaries and my enemies, they stumbled and fell. Though a host encamp against me, my heart will not fear. Though war arise against me, in spite of this, I shall be confident. Those are great, great words that ought to inspire us, but sometimes those words can be very difficult to follow, very difficult to imitate. David was able to utter such a strong statement of faith and trust in God, even though he faced many trials and afflictions in his life. However, Many of those afflictions that he faced were of his own making, consequences of his own actions. And that's really where most of us live, is it not? The oracle or the burden of Habakkuk is not so much one of his own making, but it gives us a great lesson in how to face whatever may come in this life from whatever direction, whether it be the result or the consequence of our own actions or from the efforts of our enemy, the devil. It's a short book. There are only three chapters in it, only 56 verses in total. And while different commentators offer outlines with slight variations of the book, the structure seems to be fairly straightforward. The first two chapters really are made up of an exchange between the prophet and Jehovah, with the final chapter being entirely composed of the powerful and emotional resignation of Habakkuk to the truth that God is in control even though what was coming was terrifying. It seems appropriate here to lay some groundwork before delving into the, the text itself. Not very much is known about the man Habakkuk other than, he, than that he was a prophet and apparently a known prophet. Even the meaning of his name is uncertain, although some have suggested that it comes from a Hebrew, Hebrew word meaning to embrace. If we're correct in understanding the time frame 
to be somewhere around the end of the 7th century BC and the beginning of the 6th, somewhere around the year 600 BC. That um, is really a time when the we understand from history that the Chaldeans were coming into uh, the Babylonians, also known as Chaldeans, were coming in to invade Judah. That was part of God's judgment on the nation of Judah. It was also a time when society was not as, at its best. About a hundred years had passed since the invasion of Israel and Judah by the Assyrians, which resulted in the end of Israel as a nation and the near defeat of Judah, which was only averted by the faithful and humble submission of good King Hezekiah to Jehovah. Since that time, however, Judah had moved further and further from a right relationship with God. The, this time of shallow spirituality would have been of great concern to a man of faith like Habakkuk was. In um, the Baker Encyclopedia of the Bible, Thomas McComiskey says, the book of Habakkuk reveals a man of great sensitivity. His deep concern about injustice and his prayer show that Habakkuk was characterized by profound religious conviction and social awareness. And he's referencing Habakkuk's final prayer in chapter 3. Well, this deep concern of Habakkuk for his people is really seen at the beginning of the book. Habakkuk does not begin the book questioning the wisdom of bringing in the Chaldeans as a punishment of the evil Judeans. He's not even aware of God's plan at this point <clears throat> when the book begins. But he is concerned about the great sin and injustice that exists among his people. I would ask, are you concerned about the sin and injustice that exists among our people? <clears throat> I realize that the nation of Judah were all the people of God, and our nation is not made up exclusively of the people of God, but there are some parallels that we can draw. Well, in the book, it was only when God explained his plan to Habakkuk that the prophet's real struggle began. Here's what I want us to get from this lesson this evening. Whether or not we understand all the reasons for and implications of what we endure in this life, God is in control. And man's responsibility is to trust him to get us through, even if that costs us our physical lives. Our approach to this text is going to be very simple. We're going to look at the first two, or rather the two, exchanges that uh, Habakkuk has with Jehovah God. The first one is in the first 11 verses of chapter 1. The second begins in, chapter, in uh, verse 12 and goes through the end of chapter 2. And then finally, we will look at Habakkuk's prayer of praise in chapter 3. Let's look first of all at this first exchange. Habakkuk asks a question. Beginning verse 1, the text says, The oracle which Habakkuk the prophet saw, How long, O Lord, will I call for help and you will not hear? I cry out to you violence, yet you do not save. 
Why do you make me see iniquity and cause me to look on wickedness? Yes, destruction and violence, destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists and con, uh, contention arises. Therefore, the law is ignored and justice is never upheld. For the wicked surround the righteous, therefore justice comes out perverted. Clearly, Habakkuk is upset. There's injustice in Judah. And he's prayed for justice and deliverance as far as, and as far as he can tell, there's been no answer from God. In fact, Habakkuk's problem seems to be with Jehovah himself at this point. It's as though he could have put uh, this in, in the words with which we began the lesson. I don't know why I even bother to pray. You see, Habakkuk was someone who did say those words in a prayer. Life has its frustrations, certainly. But if we're not careful, we can let those frustrations take over, and we then become easy prey to the thought that God is no longer listening, or even worse, God is no longer still in control. Well, the prophet doesn't appear to have fallen that far uh, yet. God's going to answer him with a shocking solution to the problem. Shocking, at least, to Habakkuk's way of thinking. Look at Jehovah's response, beginning in verse 5. Look among the nations. Observe. Be astonished. Wonder. Because I am doing something in your days you would not believe if you were told. For behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, that fierce and impetuous people who march throughout the earth to seize dwelling places which are not theirs. They are dreaded and feared. Their justice and authority originate with themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards and keener than wolves in the evening. Their horsemen come galloping. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swooping down to devour. All of them come for violence. Their horde of faces moves forward. They collect captives like sand. They mock at kings and rulers are a laughing matter to them. They laugh at every fortress and heap up rubble to capture it. Then they will sweep through like the wind and pass on, but they will be held guilty, they whose strength is their God. God begins his answer to Habakkuk by saying, open your eyes. God is doing something. And what he is doing is something that, that the prophet would, would scarcely believe. The answer to the problem of injustice and unrighteousness in the land of Judah is to raise up the Chaldeans who would invade Judah and punish them or judge them on God's behalf. These Chaldeans, the Babylonians, were a fierce warrior people. Militarily, they were the superpower of the day. No army could resist them. Egypt would try, but would fail. The Chaldeans had only recently destroyed the once all-powerful Assyrian Empire. Jehovah's answer ends, though, with a warning that the Chaldeans would bring about their own end through their arrogance. Let's make some application here. How many times have you felt you were suffering unjustly and wondered if God was ever going to answer your prayers? How many times have you cried out, at least in your mind, how long, O Lord? Perhaps we should open our eyes and observe. It might just be that Jehovah God is working his own purpose through our suffering. Let's look at the second exchange. First, Habakkuk's second question, his response to God's response. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We will not die. 
You, O Lord, have appointed them to judge, and you, O Rock, have established them to correct. Your eyes are too pure to approve evil, and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. Why do you look with favor on those who deal treacherously? Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than they? Why have you made men like the fish of the sea, like creeping things without a ruler over them? The Chaldeans bring all of them up with a hook, drag them away with their net, and gather them together in their fishing net. Therefore, they rejoice and are glad. Therefore, they offer a sacrifice to their net and burn incense to their fishing net, because through these things their catch is large and their food is plentiful. Will they therefore empty their net and continually slay nations without sparing? <coughs> Moving into chapter one, excuse me. I will stand on my guard post and station myself on the rampart. And I will keep watch to see what he will speak to me and how I may reply when I am reproved. God's answer, <coughs> excuse me, to the prophet did not satisfy Habakkuk. In fact, Jehovah's plan seemed even more outrageous than the initial problem. Now, I want us to think through this. Habakkuk complained that God was not addressing the problem. And God responds by telling Habakkuk, I am addressing the problem. I have a plan that is so great, you wouldn't believe it if I told you, but I'm going to tell you anyway. And then he tells him, and the prophet's response is, I can't believe it. Look at verse 13 again. Your eyes are too pure to approve evil, and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. Why do you look with favor on those who deal treacherously? Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than they? Apparently, Habakkuk felt it was better to suffer injustice and suffering in the family than to bring in a bunch of outsiders. And I'd like us to pause here for a moment and consider the kind of relationship that Habakkuk had with his heavenly father. It strikes me as very interesting. He doesn't have any difficulty in bringing his concerns to God in prayer. And we see a confidence here that many do not possess. Some might even call it brash or arrogant. And we should note that at the end of this particular exchange, in, in that verse 1 of chapter 2, the prophet seems to acknowledge that he might have gone too far in chastising Jehovah uh, God himself and expects to be reproved. But we should also note that God never reproved Habakkuk for a lack of respect or for his impatience. This suggests that it's not necessarily wrong to bring our concerns to God in such a seemingly forceful way, as long as our basic attitude is one of humility and righteousness, which is what we see in Habakkuk's oracle or burden when we take, uh, take it as a whole. Well, now that the prophet has had his say about God's plan, God answers again. And we'll look at verse 2 down through verse 20. I'm not going to read all 19 of these verses but enough to get the, the gist of what is being said. Verse two begins, Then the Lord answered me and said, Record the vision and inscribe it on tablets that the one who reads it may run. For the vision is yet for the appointed time. It hastens toward the goal and it will not fail. Though it tarries, wait for it, for it will certainly come and it will not delay. Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by his faith. Now let's skip down to verse 15. 
Woe to you who make your neighbors drink, who mix in your venom, even to make them drunk, so as to look on their on their nakedness. <coughs> Excuse me. You will you will be filled with disgrace rather than honor. <clears throat> now you yourself drink and expose your own nakedness. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around you and utter disgrace will come upon your glory. For the violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you and the devastation of its beasts by which you terrified them because of human bloodshed and violence done to the land, to the town and all its inhabitants. What profit is the idol when its maker is, has carved it? Or an image, a teacher of falsehood? For its maker trusts in his own handiwork when he fashions speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a piece of wood, Awake! To a mute stone, Arise! And that is your teacher? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all inside it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. Now, I want to say before I go any further, how indebted I am, and, and, and I want to acknowledge Brother Jeff Jenkins, who made this point in a lesson I heard him present several years ago about this, this part of our text, verses 2 through 4. Very powerful point that he made. Uh, and, and I've included that in this lesson because it is so powerful. Verse 2 is about as close to a reproof of Habakkuk as God seems to come. If we were to put this uh, into our own vernacular, our own way of speaking, the Lord says, Habakkuk, your job is not to understand my plan. Your job is to write down what I tell you and write it clearly enough so that the faithful can read and know what to do to survive what is coming. Judgment is coming. Do not be mistaken. Well, this seems to be a great place for some more application. Does this not apply to us today every bit as much as it did for Habakkuk? Well, of course it does. As preachers of the gospel or any other uh, Christian who is charged with sharing the gospel, and that means all of us, it is not our job to understand fully all the ways of God. It's true. What another prophet said, that God's ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts higher than ours. It's not our job to fully understand all of his ways or every nuance of every command. Our job is to preach or write the truth of God's word and to preach it or write it clearly enough so that those who hear or read it can understand what's necessary to, do, to survive the judgment that is coming. When we start questioning God because we don't understand how he could mean what he appears to mean to the point of studying more and digging deeper into God's word, that's one thing. But when we take the next step of changing what he says to make it more understandable in our own minds or more appealing to the ears of others, we've gone too far. We've gone far beyond what the prophet Habakkuk did. And Jehovah makes it perfectly clear that judgment is coming. Well, rather than worrying over the fairness or justness of the plan, Habakkuk has a job to do and time is running out. If a person is going to be prideful and insist that the plan is not fair, well, there's something wrong with that, that person's soul. The contrast to that proud man is the righteous man who will survive judgment because of his faith. And I want to point out here 
that neither in Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 4, nor in Romans chapter 1 and verse 17, where the Apostle Paul quotes this passage in Habakkuk 2, neither of those times are those words meant to be a commentary on daily Christian living. Now, there's a lot more to be said about daily Christian living and how faith is to be such an important part of that daily walk that, uh, of the Christian life. There's no question about that. But here, Habakkuk and in Romans 1.17, Paul are both talking about judgment is coming, folks. Paul is going to say in verse 18 or speak in verse 18, uh, of Romans chapter 1, of a time when the wrath of God will be revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And then a few verses later in chapter 2 and verse 5 of Romans, he's going to mention specifically a day of wrath and revelation. And Paul was saying, you got one shot to survive judgment. And faith is that shot. Habakkuk was being told, you need to write this down. You need to write it in such a way that people can read it and understand it. And when the time comes, they know what to do. Well, continuing his response, Jehovah excuse me, makes it clear that while he was quite willing to use the Chaldeans for his purpose of judging Judah, he was not willing to overlook their sin in the process. Babylon is not going to escape their own judgment. In bringing Jehovah's justice to, justice to the Jews, the Chaldeans are going to exhibit their own injustice, according to verse 16, their own nakedness, and will be brought down in their turn for it. Now, historically speaking, the Chaldeans that destroyed Jerusalem and took away the captives in 586 BC, the final invasion, were not as evil as Habakkuk feared they would be. They were led by Nebuchadnezzar, who recognized that by that point that he was a servant of Jehovah. He sent uh, messengers into Jerusalem when the walls were breached, looking for a faithful Jeremiah. And, was, and he told them to take care of that prophet of God. A very interesting historical side note is that this Nebuchadnezzar who destroyed Jerusalem, who was as pagan as they come. Do you remember the giant statue in Susa? that he built and ordered everyone to worship it or be thrown into fire, Daniel chapter 3. He had, by 586 B.C., been exposed to four godly young men named Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Those last three are known better to us as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Wow, it's almost as though God had a plan, isn't it? It was not until Nebuchadnezzar's descendants were ruling Babylon that their arrogance led to their destruction. But that destruction will come as the wages of sin always do. The response of Jehovah concludes with a commentary on idolatry in verses 18 through 20. And I don't know if you've ever seen verse uh, 20 posted in a church auditorium with the intent of encouraging a quiet and reverent attitude when we assemble together. You know, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before him. I think my first memory of this verse came with the, shall we say, encouragement uh, to um, remember that I was in God's house, and so I had better be quiet. Well, that 
kind of application is a gross misapplication of this passage. This verse does not mean keep quiet in the assembly. It means that we worship a living God. In idolatry, the worshipers do all the talking because there's nobody home on the other end. In our worship, however, our God is alive, and we would do well to listen to him rather than tell him what we think he needs to know. Even though audibly, in a physical sense, we hear men speaking, or all of us speaking in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, it's God who is speaking to us through those who faithfully faithfully lead us in worship. We may be tempted to ask God why the unrighteous seem to get away with their unrighteousness. It is true that there are things in this life that do not seem to be fair. God says here that the unrighteous do not get away with anything. Righteousness will prevail and unrighteousness will be punished. I go back to that Romans chapter 1 and verse 18, when the wrath of God will be revealed against such. The lesson for us is we can trust our God. Now, let's go back to chapter 2 and verse 1, where the prophet says he will see how he will reply to whatever God says next. Well, chapter 3 is that reply. We call it Habakkuk's prayer of praise. Habakkuk was deeply moved by Jehovah's response. Verse 1 of that says, A prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, according to Shigayon. Now, I've found a lot of explanations for the meaning of of Shigayon, uh, but none of them seem any more clear or easy to explain than the footnote in my Bible. A highly emotional poetic form. Yes, Habakkuk had questioned God. Some might even say he chastised God. But it's clear by this prayer that he was always disposed to humble himself before God. And he seems willing to accept whatever God has in store for the Jews. In verses 3 through 15, we find what might be termed a theophany, which is an appearance of God to man, but it's a different kind It's not in any kind of physical appearance. God appears in a figurative manner in judgment of Judah. And these verses describe the very elements of creation and their reaction to the judgment of God. Look in verses 12 and 13. In indignation, you march through the earth in anger. In anger, you trample the nations. You went forth for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You struck the head of the house of the evil to lay him open from thigh to neck. And that gives us a bit a sense of the purpose of God. God was not sending judgment on his people because he no longer loved them, but precisely because he did love them and he wanted to save them. That's where the job of Habakkuk and his colleagues, the prophets, comes in. They were charged with the responsibility of getting that message out And that is precisely the same charge we have today. Judgment is coming. But this time, it will not be to convince the unrighteous to come back to God. This time, judgment is final. The unrighteous must come back to God before judgment, or it will be too late. As Christians, we simply must understand the urgency of that fact. All of this has led to Habakkuk's conclusion 
And I find verses 16 through 19 to be among the most powerful in all of Scripture. Let's start reading in verse 16. I heard and my inward parts trembled. At the sound, my lips quivered. Decay enters my bones, and in my place I tremble. Because I must wait quietly for the day of distress for the people to arise who will invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olives should fail and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold and there be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength and he has made my feet like hinds feet and makes me walk on my high places. These verses indicate a level of faith on the part of Habakkuk that may be hard for some to comprehend, but which also serve as an example of what our faith must be. Habakkuk was terrified at this point, terrified of the judgment that he now understands cannot be avoided. It's an acknowledgement akin to Jesus' statement, not my will, but thine be done in Matthew 26 and verse 42. However, even in his fear, the prophet is ready to accept whatever comes because he knows that God is in control. It doesn't matter how bad things get. He will trust Jehovah. If the invader destroys the economy, in verse 17, all of those things uh, that he mentions there that might happen, even if they do happen, have to do with agriculture. Because they were an agrarian society, that was their total economy. And if the invader destroys the economy so that there's no food, Habakkuk says, I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. Do you have that kind of faith? Do I? What if those who have stated publicly that they want to destroy our nation succeed in doing so? What if they destroy our economy so that there's no food? I mean, we saw a year and a half ago uh, what happened when, when the whole world shut down and we were all told to stay home. And there were shortages on the shelves. Now, a year and a half later, there are other shortages on the shelves. What if it were worse? What if we went to the store and there was, there was nothing to buy? That did happen in Jerusalem. There was no food. What if God, in judging this nation, causes us to be ruled by another? It's hard for Americans to admit that's a possibility. It's a possibility. Of course, it can happen. If it, if it does happen, will the Lord God be your strength? Or will you give in to despair? Will you lose your faith and turn your back on God because you know, he must be too weak to stop it? My prayer is that all of us will have the faith of Habakkuk. Remember, having faith does not mean laughing at physical danger. Physical danger is a scary thing as well it should be. There's some self-preservation built into us by God himself to run from scary things, to try to survive in some way. <clears throat> we may hear and our inward parts may tremble, but our verse 16 
must lead to a verse 18. It has to be that way. Go back to what God said in chapter 2 about what's wrong with the proud man. What's wrong with the one who, de who depends on himself or herself to survive, to deal with tragic things, scary things in this life, catastrophic things in this life. Something wrong with that person. The righteous person survives those things through faith, through faith. So let me say it again. We may have a verse 16 where we hear and our inward parts tremble. But that verse 16 must lead, no matter how bad the verse 17 is, to a verse 18. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. No matter what happens through this time of uncertainty that we live in right now, no matter what happens, God is still God. God has not lost control. And I promise you, when he was reassuring Habakkuk that he had a plan that would deliver his people, he knew right then in that moment, 20, let's see, what would that be? This is 2021 plus 600. 2,621 years ago, God knew how bad the Delta variant was going to be in this pandemic that we call COVID-19. God's not lost any control whatsoever. Habakkuk had reason to hope. He knew that even though the future was scary, that it terrified him. Jehovah was still in control. He could still say at the end that he trusted God to be his strength. And we can take hold of that same faith. Habakkuk is truly an example of faith. When things get desperate in your life, remember this short prophecy. When faith is hard to come by, look to Habakkuk and see the divine through the difficult. I thank you so much <clears throat> for your uh, patient um, at uh, um, attention. It was been a, it's been a pleasure and a blessing to bring these words to you. God bless.